are here today reaching out for you. And Lord, we acknowledge the fact that that is only because you first reached to us. Lord, we, we understand, Lord, that all that we have is in you. That you are everything that we need. That you have provided all that we need, all that we could ever need. But Lord, even in that, we say we want more. We want more of you. Lord, we come here today and Lord, we, we, we simply confess, Lord, that we do not want more of the gifts. We want more of the giver. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us today. That you would move powerfully in and through us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please be seated? Before we get started in our study this morning, we're blessed to have not only one child dedication, but two. So if Matthew and Larry would please bring up Kayla and Jacob. Hi, buddy. Are you going to let me hold you? Man, are you a sharp-dressed man. Look at that. <laughs> Yeah, see you wave out there, say hi. Yeah. Yeah. Can wave those are those are I know there's a lot of them out there, but they want to say hi. Go ahead and wave. Say hi. <laughs> oh, what a what a blessing. What a special blessing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for life. <laughs> oh, Lord, and we thank you for the gift of life that you have given to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask and we praise you and we thank you, Lord, for the life today of little Jacob and, and Kayla. Lord, we ask that you would just pour out your blessing upon this family, Lord. Give them grace in abundance. Lord, I, I pray that, that this, this family, that these little ones, their earliest remembrance would be of sitting around as a family, time together in your word and praying for each other. And Lord, that you would be the center of all things to them. Lord, I pray that you would use this young boy and girl mighty for you, mightily for your kingdom's sake. Lord, I pray that you would just bless this family. And Lord, we thank you for blessing our family with them. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 My goodness. You are a good little boy, that's for sure. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. Praise the Lord. All right. Well, if you would now, please take out your Bibles and open them up with me to the book of Acts. If you're new to Calvary Chapel and unfamiliar with, you know, with the, how, we go, how we go through the Word of God, we, we study the Word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And we, on the, if, on the Wednesday nights, we're going through the Old Testament, just started a study in 1 Kings this past Wednesday, and on the weekends, we've been going through the New Testament, and we finished up, a couple of weeks ago, we finished up the Gospel of Matthew. 
Now, some of you might say, well, the next book is Mark. Well, you're, you're right, and we're not skipping Mark, Luke, and John. We're jumping over them temporarily as we now are going to study through the book of Acts. We will come back, should the Lord tarry, and study the other gospel accounts as well. The book of Acts, as we begin our study through it, it's a, it's a continuation where the gospels leave off, the book of Acts picks up. Jesus, the Gospels take us through the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection. God himself stepping out of heaven, becoming one of us, living a perfect, sinless life, and then exchanging that life on the cross for us. Paying the penalty that we deserve for our sin. Rising three days later to prove that that penalty, that payment was received on our behalf. And then rising to heaven. Making the promise before he goes that I go to prepare a place for you. And because I go, I will come back and I will receive you unto myself and there, so that you will be with me forever. We hold on to that promise and we know that promise is true and that he's coming again. The, gospel of, or the, the book of Acts picks up where the Gospels leave off. And it's the history of the early church. The message that is given to these apostles and to these followers of Jesus and how that then spreads. You know, there are unbelievable, un, uh, untold numbers of books and seminars and conferences on how to do church. How to have church growth seminars, how to, how to build church, how to do church. And you know what? Quite honestly, there's only one book that we need to study, and that's the one we're starting today. It's the book of Acts. It's the outline for how we are to do this thing. <laughs> how, how we are to, to follow in, in that model and in their footsteps. Now, as we begin, and we study this together now, we begin in verse 1. A little background in it as we go. It says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. We see right away that, that, that this is, this is a, a, a letter, if you would, or an account written by someone to someone. And the by, we don't, we're not told. He doesn't identify himself in it, but throughout church history, there is little to no debate as to who wrote the book of Acts, and we're going to see that in a moment. It was Luke, the same Luke who recorded for us the gospel of Luke, and that is the first record, the first account that he is speaking of. The book of Acts is a continuation of the book of Luke. Many even looked at it initially as one complete volume broken up into two separate sections. The author Luke, we know little of, a little bit. He was a Gentile. We know that because his name Luke is not a Jewish name. And we know that from Paul's account in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, that, that Luke was a doctor. Uh, uh, and we're, we see there's some words that he uses as he goes through very technical, very, very medically related very intelligent man. He writes this, this account to a man named Theophilus. And, and the interesting part about his name is something that hopefully as all, all of us, everyone in this room can identify with. Theophilus, broken down. Theo, meaning God. Phyllis, where we get the term or the word Philadelphia, uh, uh, one of the Greek words for love. So either one that is loved 
by God or a lover of God. And if you are a born-again believer today, you are loved by God and a lover of God. Amen? Amen. So, though this is written to an individual, we can claim it as our own. Those that are loved by God. We see in Luke's account in his gospel, and we're going to look at that in a moment real quickly, but in chapter 1, verse 3, Luke, I, Luke speaks of Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus. And that is a term that was used back in the Roman culture, in the Roman class system, to speak to, of someone who held a high office, even a, like a senator or a governor. Now, we don't know that for certain, but using that term would sure indicate that Theophilus is a powerful man in the Roman hierarchy, more than likely a very wealthy man, more than likely, again, as we look to the introduction here and in Luke, that he it was a Christian, perhaps wanting more instruction. A lot of, a lot of those commentaries and, and those that look back on this feel that Theophilus quite possibly owned Luke as a physician. That he was, he was either a slave or, or the, the um, private personal physician for Theophilus, because that's the way a lot of it was done back then. I was almost, interesting little fact that you might find interesting, I was almost named Theophilus. That, check with my parents afterwards, but uh, you know, when I, was, when I was born, the doctor, as he handed the, me to my mom, he said, now that is Theophilus looking baby I've ever seen. <laughs> and they toyed around with it for a second, and his name, by the way, was Dr. Doolittle. And that is the truth. Um, anyway, back to the text. <laughs> the first account, again, I mentioned, is the Gospel of Luke. So would you turn there with me real quick? Let's look at the introduction, Luke chapter 1. We, I think it's a, a, a quick little thing that's good for us to take a look at this because we see a little bit into the heart of Luke behind why he wrote these, these accounts for us. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. I think it's interesting, and I like this, because Luke, as I mentioned, he's a doctor. He's an intelligent person. And he heard the accounts. He was not an eyewitness, but he heard the accounts. And it tells us here that he investigated everything thoroughly. And what that resulted in? was an absolute love for the Lord Jesus. A life sold out for him. And a life dedicated to telling the story to others. I say that because so many people, you know, run from the fact, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but run from the fact that, oh, you know what, I can't share with them because they're, they're, they're so smart. You know, they're going to ask me questions that I can't answer. You know what? Our job isn't to worry about that. Our job is to plant the seeds and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. That's what happened with Luke, no doubt. A seed was planted, 
And the Holy Spirit went to work inside of him, and it created this desire to dig into it more. And the more he dug, you know what? The more he found out and the more he fell in love with Jesus, and that fire, like I said, was ignited in him, and he had to, he had to share it. I had to write this down. I had to tell you about it. I had to give you this so that you could know for sure the exact truth. He tells us that these things, back, to, back in chapter Acts, verse 1, that Luke is, is a record of all of the things it says that Jesus began to do and teach. That's an important word as we begin our study into the book of Acts. That word began. He began to do and teach. Luke takes us all the way up to the, the, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. So you would think that that would be the complete work, but it's not. That's where the work began. It began when Jesus had here his physical body, the incarnation, God himself stepping out of heaven, becoming one of us, living that perfect sinless life. That It began with the incarnation, his physical body, but it continues through his spiritual body. That's us, through impartation. Jesus continues to do this work today. His work is not done. We will see it as we trace it through the book of Acts, but we know that he continues it now. I heard one commentator say it. I like it. The book of Acts shouldn't have ended with a period. It should have ended with a comma because it continues going. He continues this work, but it's so important that we understand that the information that Jesus passes on is not just an intellectual thing. This isn't just a teaching that Jesus passed on and that is carried on from there. Because if it was just information, it would not have the effect that it has had. It would have died out a long time ago. There's something that takes place in the life of a believer. There's something that takes place when we, when we accept Jesus into our life, and that is the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that the, this work has gone on. That, his, that his, the things that he did and taught have continued. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the book of Acts 59 times. The first time is right here in the verses we're looking at. He continues this work through us, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's recorded for us in John chapter 20. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So he said, he's telling us, I, he, the Father sent me, I did this, now as at the end, I'm sending you. And he said, when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I'm sending you, but you can't go without the Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. If you, in the title you might have in your Bible where it says the Acts of the Apostles, you know, that's commonly what most refer to it as. But, but if we look at this in its, in its entirety as we've been talking about so far, a proper title should probably be the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Acts of the Apostles by the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But we'll just call it Acts because that's a lot shorter just as long as you understand that that's what this is. To do and to teach. 
Guys, as we step out into this journey together, we need to understand that those two must go together. Doing and teaching. We can't just teach it without doing it, because that would be hypocrisy. And we can't just do it without teaching it, because that leaves all the questions. What's different about you, but without the answers? That it's Jesus, that's the difference. I like what it says about Ezra. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and his ordinances. Notice, first of all, it says he set his heart. It was a purposeful decision that Ezra made. He had to, he had to set aside this. He said, I will do this. I'm setting this aside, purposeful decision to do three things, to study the word of God, to read it, to marinate in it, to understand it, to take it in, but then a purposeful decision to practice it, to do it, to live it out and a purposeful decision to share it and to tell other people. That's what we're called to do, guys. Well, verse 3, it tells us to these, that's the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of heaven. He presented himself alive to the disciples, and a few weeks ago, as we talked about that, and it wasn't just to them. He did this to many over the course of 40 days, appearing and removing all doubt that he was alive physically. He ate with them. Spirits don't eat. <laughs> he ate with them. Thomas doubted. He said, I won't believe unless I can touch him. I can put my hands in the, in the nail marks. I won't believe. And Jesus appears and says, okay, Thomas, touch, feel, believe. Many convincing proofs. But again, guys, the ability to do what these men and women did has nothing to do with that physical proof. Again, it did not, they couldn't just take that information and go without something taking place on the inside of them. I mean, I. I struggle with a way to try to illustrate this, but I love to play golf. I don't get to play it as much as I'd like, but I love to play golf. And I'd love to be better at it. Now, there's no doubt that I could be better at it a little bit if I spent some time with a professional and he could help me. But even if I spent three years with Jordan Spieth as my personal golf instructor, and for those of you who don't know, he's the, one of the top golfers in the world. If I spent three years with him, I can guarantee you I would not be able to play golf like him. The only way that that could possibly transpire is if somehow Jordan Spieth got inside of me. And that's what has to take place. It's not just the physical proof. He could show, he could show me golf swing after golf swing after golf swing. It's not going to change my swing unless he could get inside of me. And all of the physical proof that is there is not going to be the difference maker. See, an important concept we need to understand is God is way bigger than us. His ways are beyond our full comprehension. As a matter of fact, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 that his ways and his thoughts are so much higher than ours, he tries to measure it and give us something to measure it by saying, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways and his thoughts above our ways and our thoughts. 
Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We need to understand a starting point for human flesh. We need to understand a starting point for us as, as people, as men and women. Guys, we in our own cannot, it's impossible for us to grab a hold of these things. It's not a, a slight possibility, it's impossible. God is spirit. Man relies on intellect and reason. And human intellect can never comprehend spiritual things. He uses the word unfathomable. It, it, it can't be done, it can't be processed. Human reason can know about God Romans chapter 1, Paul makes it very clear. God has made himself evident to everyone. No one will have an excuse saying, I didn't know about God. It's, 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 everyone knows about God, but there's something that needs to take place in order for us to know God, and there's a big difference. Knowing about God and knowing God. And it's vitally important as we begin our study through the book of Acts and understanding what it is that God is calling us to do today, that that is true. Would you please turn with me, keep your finger here in Acts, and turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul writes, beginning in verse 9, But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, in which have not entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them, notice, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. As born-again believers, we need to understand the difference that is in us, the Holy Spirit in us. This mystery, Paul says, this mystery revealed Christ in us, the hope of glory. I would encourage you, we don't have time today to unpack all that's in these verses that we just read, but mark that and go back and read that and pray through that and understand that we, as, as born-again believers, have the Holy Spirit in us. And that makes us, again, different. We are able now to not understand everything, but understand things that the rest of the world doesn't. And it's important that we understand that as a starting point. Because the rest of the world deals with what's called rationalism. It deals with this idea that the human mind is supreme. 
that there's nothing greater than the human mind and thought process and understanding. But if we really look at that, how silly that is, that trying to understand God with the human mind and saying that the human mind is supreme in that, rationalism is placing its their, all of its confidence in the ability of something to do what it is totally incapable of doing. It, it's, like, it's like, again, you're, 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 you're on the, you work for Boeing, and, you're, and your job is to put the wing on the plane, and you run out of rivets. And you said, I know, duct tape works for everything. <laughs> and you play, place your complete confidence in the ability of this duct tape to hold the wing on. It's completely incapable of doing that. That's what rationalism is. And that's completely irrational, if you ask me. You see, the only rational thing to do is when you come face to face with the Lord Jesus is to put every, throw everything else away to follow him. That's what Paul did. Saul, then Paul, as we will see later on as we study through the book of Acts. But it's he who wrote Philippians 2.8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. These are important things. Again, I, I emphasize this over and over, but we need to understand that it's not our power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Verse 4, gathering back in Acts, verse 4, gathering to the, them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We begin in verse 4 here now, the final words of Jesus before he ascends. And he tells them first, he reminds them of a promise, a promise of the Father, a promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now this is an upcoming event for the disciples. We're going to get to that at the beginning of chapter 2. It's what we call Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. We're going to get to that in chapter 2 in much more detail, but know that this is an upcoming event. This is a separate event from when Jesus breathed upon them and they received the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're going to get to that, like I said, when we get to chapter 2, when this actually takes place. He's telling them that this is going to, going to happen. But in the meantime, he gives them a command. He tells them to wait. Now, I don't know about you, but to quote an old Tom Petty song, the waiting for me is the hardest part. <laughs> the, to, 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 to sit back and to, and to wait, sometimes that is the most difficult thing for me to do. You've heard the saying, patience is a virtue, and it is. Patience also, the Bible tells us, is a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And I, again, honest, it's one I struggle with. And it's one I'm tested in constantly. I, one of my, biggest, my biggest struggles with patience is when I'm you know, riding, driving behind that person that's doing 30 and a 45, and I have nowhere to go. I mean, I, I, I'm not in a hurry to get anywhere, but it's just the fact that I'm behind them and everybody else is going the speed limit. That just bothers me. <laughs> and I know that God placed me there. 
I know he did, because he's not doing that with everybody else. Everybody else is moving. We're all, we all at times can probably admit that we can be impatient with things, situations, people. Certainly if you have a busy life and you have, you have, you have your own timelines and checklists and things that you need to get done and you, you understand, hey, this is the way it goes and I got to get this done and if I don't get this done, then that stops this from going and this person's waiting on all of these types of things. And guys, sometimes we need to hear that voice that says, wait. Because I don't care what your checklist says. I don't care what your timeline is. When the omniscient, omnipotent one says, wait, I suggest you wait. And I, I say that loudly so that I can hear it. <laughs> you know, one of, one of my favorite psalms, and there are many, is Psalm 37, specifically verses 23 and 24. David writes, the steps, and I'll, I'm going to interject something right here to fit into the text we're talking about right now. The steps and the stops of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. The steps are ordained by God, and the stops are ordained by God. For followers of God, we as children of God, we need to understand that. That the sovereign God who loves us, He has laid out the path before us, the race that is set before us. And the steps are ordained. The stops are established by God. And when we walk in that, and we are obedient to it, it tells us that he delights in that way. But notice, right after he says he delights in that way, he says, when he falls. It doesn't mean we won't fall. It doesn't mean we won't stumble. But the promise there is that we won't fall headlong when we stumble. Because he has a hold of our hand. When I'm walking now with my three-year-old grandson, I mean, his attention is all over everywhere. And he trips every once in a while when I'm holding his hand. But you know what? He doesn't fall down when I'm holding his hand. And the same is true with us. And guys, when the steps and the stops are ordained, the stumbles are contained. We don't fall out. And we need to learn to listen to that. We need to learn to discern when he's saying, wait, when he's saying, go. We need to discern again as the Holy Spirit speaks to us and gives us those checks. Isaiah 30, verse 21 says, Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. Are we hearing that? Are we too busy on our own agenda and our own checklists and everything that we go to hear that? Or are we in tune with the Lord as we go about the business that He set us to do? Over well, six, it says, So when they had come together, they were asking Him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even the remotest parts of the earth. I, you know, again, I, I love placing myself in the, the, the story. And, and, and so we're, we're looking at this, and Jesus just said, go to Jerusalem and wait. And they're like, yeah, 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 I know, but... Does this mean that this is when you're, you're going to restore Israel, the kingdom to Israel? And as we've talked, you can't, we can't blame the, the disciples for this. We can't blame any Jewish person for this because they expected the Messiah to do that, to restore the kingdom. And the Messiah, Jesus, will. And they were just saying, is this the time? Is that going to happen now? And Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He, he redirects them back to what he had just said. There's a promise that's coming. There's a promise that, that is coming, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you need to go and you need to wait because you will receive power. And again, we're going to study this a little bit more when we get to, to chapter 2. But he refocuses them back to this. And he says, it's not for you to know these things that you're asking. It's not for you to know the times or the epochs, or the, when these things are going to take place. It's not for you to know that. Basically saying you are on a need-to-know basis, and right now you don't need to know. And that's hard too, isn't it? How many times do we say, why, Lord? Why? When, Lord, when? Where? Where, Lord? And then when we don't hear an answer, the first thing that we need to do when we are praying in those, in those arenas and we don't have an answer, the first thing that we need to do is examine ourselves and ask the Lord to search us and see if there's any wickedness in us, any way that is not pleasing to Him that we need to confess because those, that sin in our life, those things can block that communication. But if we are in that place where, where there, there isn't that and we're saying, why, Lord? I don't understand why I'm in this situation. And there is no answer. We need to trust that he's saying, you don't need to know why. You just need to trust me. You just need to, to wait. When, Lord? When is this going to end? If you don't hear an answer, it's because he... He says, you don't need to know that. And quite honestly, sometimes when I say, when is this going to end? God says, I tell you the truth, but you can't handle the truth. <laughs> if you knew how long this might go, you might give up. You're not, you can't handle it. So I'm not going to tell you. You just trust me. You just go a step at a time, a day at a time, where, Lord? Well, sometimes he doesn't tell us. He didn't tell Abraham, but Abraham stepped out in obedience. You see, some things he lets us in on. Some things he reveals to us. Others he doesn't. And as Jesus tells us, that's his prerogative. And we just need to trust. Trust in the one who is sovereign. Trust in the one who knows everything. Trust in the one who 
never does anything wrong, he can't. And trust in the one who loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son for us. When is this going to happen? The restoring of the kingdom of Israel. It's coming. It's a fixed event. The, king, the Father knows. It's coming. It's not like that's, that's debatable. It's coming. But the times, don't worry. Don't obsess over it. But, he says, this you do need to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And again, we'll get into that in detail when we get to that, that event, when it's coming. You will receive it. When they do receive it, we'll talk about it there. But notice he says, you shall be my witnesses. Don't worry about when the kingdom is established. In the meantime, you will be my witnesses. Notice he does not say you will be my judges. He does not say you will be my prosecutors. He says you will be my witnesses. Witnesses have testimonies, and testimonies need to be shared. But there's something about a witness. In order for your testimony to be heard and believed, it needs to come from a credible witness. Is your life a credible witness? Is your, is your life a convincing proof? People can argue all they want about different feelings, their thoughts that they might have about what the Word of God says, but they can't argue with your changed life. They can't argue with what Jesus has done in your life. Does your life show that? Does your life reflect it? Well, verse 9, he says, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up while, he was looking, while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of, their, out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Again, this, this moment, how, how amazing this must have been. Jesus, they're having this exchange. Understanding, I, I think that they knew, based on their question that they asked him, that something was about to happen, different than what had been transpiring. And Jesus says these words to them, and then it says that he ascends to heaven. He, he rises up to heaven right before their eyes. He doesn't disappear like he had been doing. He'd been coming and going over the past 40 days in pre some pretty remarkable ways. Locked doors, locked rooms. There Jesus is in the midst of them. So they, they've been seeing these things, but Jesus doesn't vanish here. This takes place to... to to solidify to them that he is leaving. He has gone to the Father like he told them he was going to. And as he goes up and he goes into the cloud, many point to that as the, you know, perhaps the Shekinah glory of, of God. As he rises to heaven, now he's gone. He's disappeared. And they're standing looking up into the sky. And two angels appear to them and say, Hey guys, what are you looking at? Why? Why are you standing here now looking up into the sky? And that's a great question. Because he said he's going. He said he's coming back. But don't you have something you're supposed to be doing? <laughs> Didn't he tell you that, that you're supposed to be doing something? 
And we, I guess I say that it's a great question because so often we can kind of get caught up in that too, can't we? And we can get focused on times and when, you know, looking at the times around us and try to decipher all of this type of stuff. And we can easily get caught looking up into the sky too. He told us that he's coming back. So while we're waiting for that, do we stand looking up in the sky? No, we trust that he's coming back and we do the work that he's called us to do while he's gone. Wes Bentley last week shared with us, if you weren't here last week, by the way, and you didn't, haven't watched the message, do yourself a favor and go online and watch last week's message. It was a very, very powerful message from our friend Wes Bentley, but he referenced Luke chapter 19 and the parable that is there. And I'm just going to read one of the verses. It says, and he called the 10 of his slaves and he gave them 10 minas and he said to them, do business with this until I come back. That's what we're called to do. That's what they were called to do. That's what we're still called to do, to do business with what he gave us until he comes back. Not for a while and then go outside and stand looking up into the sky. We're not supposed to get hung up on dates and times. Yes, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, do business until he comes. Basically, the, these angels, hey guys, get busy doing what he said. And they tell us, and we're going to see as we continue through chapter 1, that they went. They were obedient. They went back into the town. They got together. They were got together and they waited. And while they were waiting, they prayed. And then Pentecost chapter 2 takes place. And they go out from there and they turn the world upside down. Or right side up. It tells us in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, speaking of some of these men that have been radically changed by Jesus in a filling of the Holy Spirit and what they're going out, it says, these men have upset the world. I don't know about you, but our world needs to be upset again. And as we study the book of Acts together, we're going to see how they did it. It's a model Again, like I said at the beginning, a model for how we need to do this. We're not going to be reading side books as we're going through this. We're going to be studying what the Word of God tells us. And I want to come back again to this because the one thing we'll notice, that they did all of it without any government support. They did every bit of it without any modern technology. They did it all powered by the Holy Spirit. Period. These aren't seminary graduates. These aren't the top of the class. These are fishermen, tax collectors, the poor, the outcast, not many mighty, not many noble, filled with the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer, many of you probably know or have read some of his writings. If, you, if you've never read a book by A.W. Tozer, I would challenge you to do so. It <laughs> challenges me every time I try to read as much as I can that he wrote. He died in 1963. And one of the quotes that he said before he died was this. If the Holy Spirit were removed from the church today, and this would have been in the 50s, 60s, and he's talking about the church as a whole, 
If the Holy Spirit were removed from the church today, 95% of what goes on would still continue and nobody would notice. If the Holy Spirit were removed from the church in the days of the book of Acts, 95% of what they did would cease immediately and everyone would notice. Now, I don't know about the validity of those statistics, but I would have to say that's probably pretty accurate. And it's also very sad. We wonder why our world is the way it is and why the church seems to be so impotent as far as to change and to affect the culture that we're in. That's why. Because we're trying to rely on on man-made things, and we're trying to rely on our own intellect and our own ways to figure things out, and we've stopped relying on the Holy Spirit. Guys, we need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. If we want America to be great again, that's no president's job. That's no Congress's job. That's our job. That's the work that we're called to do. Second Chronicles 714, and my people who are called by my name, they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Guys, we need a, a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Being a Spirit-filled Christian is not a title, it's a condition. <laughs> and bottom line, it's not about how much of the Holy Spirit you have. It's how much of you the Holy Spirit has. He's given us and He's called us to be His witnesses. He's called us to take His message to this world. And we can't do it on our own. We need need the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we all, as those who have called, been called by You, who have surrendered our lives to You, Lord, we realize that that our salvation is secure and our sanctification is in process. But Lord, our desire is to be used by You in these, time, in these last times. Lord, I, I know that You are stirring in the hearts of us as individuals and us as a church. Lord, You don't work in coincidences and you're not about chance lord we are here for such a time as this you have uniquely chosen each of us to be in surprise arizona for such a time as this and lord we ask that you would move amongst us individually personally to affect the culture that is around us by pouring out your spirit again upon us If you're here today and you have never taken that step to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never given your life to Him and trusted in Him and Him alone for your salvation, and you want to know that if you were to die today, your sins would be completely forgiven and that you would have 
eternal life. It's not a matter of doing anything other than repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus and trusting in Him. Just go before Him in your heart right now and you say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know my life is not pleasing to You. I need a Savior. And Jesus, I believe You died to save me. So right now I invite You to come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Fill me with Your Spirit and give me eternal life. I want you to be Lord now. I want to follow you. You take control. And perhaps you're here today and the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and you are a believer, but you know that He doesn't have all of you. It's a matter of confession and repentance as well. God, do that work in us today. As we spend this time in the close of our service in worship, Holy Spirit, would you please move freely, convicting and empowering and moving amongst us. Have your way here as we worship you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand? We, uh, we're going to spend a little time in worship now, and I want to invite any of you that feel that you have something to deal with, with the Lord, the Holy Spirit moving upon you. We have people up front that would like an opportunity to pray with you, or if you just even like to come up and there's, we've, there's areas up here to come up and to kneel and to pray as we worship. I'm going to invite you to do that as you feel led, but let's worship the Lord together. Lord Jesus, come, come Lord. Jesus, come. Let's pray that prayer again. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, free your people.